Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hello, folks, and welcome once again to the Tennis Podcast and Olympics Relived, where the end is... A bit nigh for my liking. We've arrived kind of at the crescendo. We've arrived at London 2012. So spoiler alert, that means we've only got two more Olympics relived editions to come. And quite worryingly, uh, unlike with the Grand Slam relived, relived if, if we end up having to do this again next year... We've we've got no other material. We've we've done all the Olympics. Archery, Catherine. We really will have to just do archery. <laughs> or weren't there some Olympics around about eighteen hundred and ninety six or something? There were. I don't think footage is available though. Archery, it is. Archery, it is. We'll rename the podcast and everything. New artwork, new merch. <laughs> Possibly new, possibly new contributors, given how Matt and David are looking at me right now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, in the series, we've managed to sort of cover, the, well, we're about to have covered sort of tennis's entire journey in, in the modern Olympics. Which was not the plan, was it? No, I mean, it wasn't we, the we, plan. <laughs> it was going to be one episode. <laughs> one basic episode, just general chit chat about what went on. Instead, we did fourteen interviews and seven and, and eight years, seven podcasts. We got carried away. Can we? Can we blame it all on Leander Pays? No, we can blame it all on you. <laughs> but you know, Leander Pays stoked the already uh, burning fire. I would say you are one and two on the podium of blame. Yes. Thank you very much. That is a podium I'm very happy to be on. So we're here. We're at London 2012. Um, and again, spoiler alert, there's going to be probably an awful lot of London UK bias to this because, I mean, I know London is the, the only city to have, to have hosted the Olympics three times. So, so maybe it's not as unique a moment in our lives as it is for people resident in cities that, that, other cities that have hosted Olympics, but it is something ha having a home Olympics, living in London at the time, despite not getting any tickets and applying uh, in every possible way. Thank you very much, London uh, Ticket Committee, for that. Um, was it a ticket committee? Whoever it was that distributed tickets and decided that the Whitaker family were not worthy. Uh, thanks very much. Um, it was. The most special 
time. Uh, the most, I mean, I don't know whether I've over-romanticised it. No, I don't think I have. I held an I held an opening ceremony party. Did anyone else do that? I was moving house, so I didn't do anything. <laughs> I didn't even have anywhere to hold an opening ceremony party. I didn't even see the opening ceremony party. And it, and what? one of the one of the you weirdest. You didn't watch that opening ceremony live. No, no, I didn't. And one of the weirdest things was that was when I was at my height of interest in Twitter. And Twitter is there isn't I, there's not a single person that I was following that was not talking about the Olympic opening ceremony, and I couldn't see it because it didn't have a working television in the house and I had no internet. Have at you watched all. it since? Yeah. Oh yeah. No. It's, I mean, it was amazing, but I, I sort of f- followed that whole Olympics through the radio, really driving from house to house, trying to move everything I owned. I, th- I think other. those were three of the best hours of my whole life. The London 2012 opening ceremony. Wow. How many times wow. have you seen it since? Well, well, actually, I feel I have watched it once in its entirety since. Um, but I, I do feel a bit funny about about watching it back because it was it was such a special moment and trying to recapture it is impossible. Why was it so um, special? So it's sort of tinged with a, a a bit of bit of poignancy of sort of I'll never have that again. Why was it so special? Well, of course, the feeling of you know this will never happen again. You know that this this, this is it. This is it for your lifetime. And it, you know how old would I have been at the time? Twenty twenty six, twenty five. It you don't have that as you get older. You experience that you're you're you become more aware of the passing of time and and aware of your mortality, I suppose. But. In my early mid-twenties, it was quite rare to have that feeling of, I will never have this again. I've got to appreciate it now. Um, and I and I think also, I mean, because uh, I'd made sausage rolls uh, with homemade uh, cocktail stick flags in with the faces of Olympians on those flags, that also made it particularly special. Um, and I think because... It was one of those rare moments where you anticipate something and look forward to it as much as it's possible to do so, to the extent that I was worried that it couldn't possibly live up to expectation. And yet it still exceeded expectation. And for that, I will always be grateful to to Danny Boyle. (laughs) Yeah, the Sebco quote... When our time came, we did it right. Always really gets me when he said that and when I've heard that since, because that is how it how it felt. There was so much pressure to get it right. And the whole two weeks was a triumph, starting with the opening ceremony and then this just outpouring of national fervor and spirit and just community, really, that we had for two weeks revolved around sport and... <laughs> Yeah, I mean I didn't have that perspective at the time. I was only I was only 16. I don't I don't think I really quite realized how special it was sort of historically in the way that you've talked about there Catherine, but I just I just remember it at the time just being amazing just to have witnessed it. Um I didn't I didn't have that Six, historical 16. perspective. Yeah. Yeah, so you were sort of like Olympics in London whatever. <laughs> It wasn't whatever. But, um. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah. It, wow. <laughs> I can't. I can't I'm, sorry. I'm still slightly reeling from the fact that you didn't watch it, David. You didn't watch it yeah. live. Oh no! It was, it was really hard to accept because 
I think the whole run up to to the Olympics had been pretty traumatic in my family because we thought we were going to move house and then we weren't going to move house we'd, we'd got a a very very young baby in the house um and there was a lot going on and and i'd also done queens and wimbledon and and all those sort of things and then suddenly oh the olympics is on is it uh, right okay and then just started to get swept up in it like everybody else but not being able to actually watch it uh, most of the time but st- still felt felt the enormity of it the thing is, though, I think there were a lot of people that wanted to be sniffy about the London Olympics, wanted to focus on the negatives, the 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 reports of, you know, the, the traffic and the overcrowding in London is going to be worse than it's ever been before. We're completely unprepared. We don't have enough dedicated bus lanes. We don't have enough dedicated Olympic lanes. And the dedicated Olympic lanes are going to cause congestion in the rest of London. And it's going to rain for the whole two weeks. And it's cost about £480 billion. And that is going to deprive our services of of what they need, etc, etc. And then it felt like during that opening ceremony, all of that ebbed away. And do you remember the story about Giles Corrin, the um, the columnist for for the Times in the UK? He was covering the opening ceremony for the Times, and he had almost sort of pre-written his opening, um, his opening paragraph, and he was all set to be sniffy about it. And sort of in the in the first ten minutes of the opening ceremony, he deleted the whole thing, and. And rewrote his opening, fessing up to the fact that he had pre-written or or had had pre-planned the tone of his piece, um, and it all got thrown out the window, and wow. he got swept up like everybody else. And I feel like I feel like that's sort of an iconic story and a really indicative one of of Londoners' experience, British people's experience of the London Olympics. I remember my brother coming over for my. Olympics opening ceremony party thinking, oh, I'll come because there's sausage rolls, but I'm not, you know, I'm not going to get wrapped up in this shizzle. How did you feel about that attitude? And he was waving the mini flags with the rest of us by the end of the night. (laughs) (laughs) The the thing is, I I think there was, my sense was, and I think we've perhaps forgotten this in hindsight, there was pressure based on how incredible the opening ceremony and the closing ceremonies were in Beijing. And there was mm. there was a feeling I got that from the coverage that how on earth do we follow this? How, what on earth can can Britain come up with to follow that? And then they did. Uh, you know, in the in it, and and it was still very British. Uh, it was very it was absolutely spectacular, but it was still very British. So we are 10 minutes into the podcast and uh, all we've talked about is the opening ceremony. So should we, it's 10 minutes per day of the Olympics. Uh, is that what we've agreed? Yeah. Or 10 minutes per per event, whichever you prefer. But, you know, settle in. I hope you've got a comfy seat. Um, shall I whiz you through some of the quirky and notable highlights from that? wonderful fortnight in July of 2012. Um, as I said, London became that fortnight the first city to host the Games three times. It also hosted them in 1908 and 1948. Um, it was the most gender equal Olympics ever, with 46% of competitors being female. Uh, in 1908, male competitors outnumbered females by, well, have a guess, in 1908, what would the ratio of male to female competitors have been? Four to one. Matt? 
Um, I reckon something somewhere between eighty and ninety percent men. Fifty-three to one. Bloody hell! Mm. I was close then. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's progress. Um, Usain Bolt became the first man to retain both sprint titles, the hundred meters and the two hundred meters, and the Jamaican four by one hundred team became the first team to run under thirty-seven seconds, thirty-six point eight four. They ran. Woidan. Shia Khani became the first Saudi Arabian woman to compete at the Olympics in the 78 kilo judo. And Sarah Attar became the first Saudi Arabian to run, uh, uh, to compete in the athletics. Uh, she competed in the 800 meters. Definitely remember that one. Uh, Super Saturday saw Greg Rutherford, Mo Farah, and Jess Ennis Hill all winning gold for GB on the track. Tell me, David, tell me you watched that live. Would you believe that's the day my TV started working? <laughs> it's meant to be. <laughs> I, I, I remember it so vividly. So I've got, I've got in the house at this point uh, a six-month-old, a two-year-old, and my wife and I are sitting in our lounge, which doesn't have a sofa in it at all or any chairs. So we're sitting on the floor surrounded by boxes, the only thing we'd unpacked was the TV, <laughs> so that we like could watch. Like your style, David. So that we could watch uh, Super Saturday, and um, and so and we and we did. Uh, but but it was kind of one of those where we'd worked flat out all day long, and we honestly we did not know really where we were up to in the Olympics at that point, uh, and what sort of a night this was going to become and actually I think that was that was pretty common wasn't it everybody knew that Jessica Ennis was in the middle of her her run to try to get gold but Greg Rutherford came out of out of the blue as I recall and then they just dropped one after another in perfect in perfect timing so that the 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 mainstream audience could see all of it unfold one after another and and it was just incredible it was the, one of the most uplifting evenings of sports i i've ever seen and my wife was jumping up and down you know amazing it was so so super wasn't it yeah really interesting what you're saying there about the sequencing because i've always felt that with athletics so it's actually quite I've always found it quite difficult to follow. Like, where are they at in each event? Like, what's going on at what time? Where do I need to look? That kind of thing. But they did such a good job of following the story on the coverage, and it just unfolded, as you said, perfectly. And one of my one of my absolute favourite images of all time is Greg Rutherford having just won the gold, cheering on Mo Farah in the final lap of his race. I mean, Greg Rutherford, who before forty five minutes ago. You know, your your average sports fan didn't know who he was. I'd never heard of him. I'd never heard of him. And suddenly he was an Olympic champion. And then in that moment, again, he was back to being the kind of the ordinary bloke rooting for Mo Farah, who was one of the stars of the games along with Chess Ennis. And yeah, it was just a sense of everything coming together on one evening. And Britain had already had this incredible day in, in the other events. And just the sort of gaze fell on on the stadium in the evening and yeah i mean just two two perfect hours and i remember i remember the sound as much as anything it's kind of this oral mexican wave almost going around the stadium as as uh mo farrow was finishing and yeah just incredible incredible memories captured so well i think by 
by the coverage of it. When I encounter people that were in that stadium that night, um, which I feel like I've done far too often in my life, I find it quite hard to be polite um, because the jealousy is too much. I really, I do my best sort of Oscar loser face. Oh, oh, that must have been, that must have been great. Exit conversation as soon as possible and cry. Um, yeah. But you, you wouldn't have seen the Greg Rutherford interview that I remember being delirious. And I mean, it felt like the whole nation just fell in love with the bloke in, in the mm. space of three minutes of just talking deliriously in one answer. <laughs> Yeah, he was another good advert for the the best things, the unexpected things. Aren't they? He's still he, wearing his medal. Yeah, it better be. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Do you think so? Got it on right now. <laughs> <laughs> Let's find out, shall we? Um, the oldest competitor at the London Olympics was seventy-year-old Hiroshi Hoketsu from Japan, who was part of the equestrian team. 70, David. There is hope for me yet. Uh, Germany's... There's there's even hope for me. I mean, (laughs) I've I've got 24 years to play with there. There is hope, but there is not a horse big enough. Uh, Germany's Stephen Feck completed one of the worst dives ever, scoring 0.0 across the board from all judges. However, he found internet fame as his dive was turned into a gif which went viral. Every cloud, Stephen. Um, <laughs> Liu Jiang won the gold in the 110 metre hurdles in 2004 in Athens, but had since struggled with an Achilles injury which kept him out of the 08 games. In the 2012 heats, his Achilles went again before the first hurdle. I remember this vividly. After sitting on the floor in agony, he eventually hopped out of the stadium, refusing the help of a wheelchair. Once in the tunnel, he turned round back onto the track and hopped his way down the track, stopping to kiss the final hurdle to rapturous applause. He was greeted by his competitors at the finish line who all helped him out of the stadium. Oh, the Olympics. That's that's the Olympics right there, isn't it? Um Nur Suryani Mohammed Taibi competed in the women's 10-metre air rifle event whilst being 35 weeks pregnant. The 29-year-old is only one of two women to be pregnant and compete at the Olympics. Uh, I've got a line here which just says, Boris stuck on zip line. Anyone want to elaborate on that or should we move on quickly? Let's, let's move on. The man who became our current Prime Minister... Um, got stuck on a zip line, got wedgied on a zip line, and everyone thought that was hilarious. No one's laughing now. <laughs> no one's laughing now. And Oscar Pistorius competed in the 2004 and 2008 Paralympics, uh, but for the first time in 2012, he was able to compete against his able-bodied rivals, and that was quite controversial. Um, at the time, but certainly another iconic moment of those games. Uh, in terms of the tennis... Can I w- ask? Yes. Sorry, with so much going on outside of the tennis, what was your you know, way of following the tennis? How, how much of a priority was the tennis for you at the London 2012 Olympics? And maybe in Olympics in general, but I feel like specifically in London there was so much so much to sort of take our attention elsewhere 
I found anyway. I was definitely multi-screening because mm. I wasn't my. I mean, my FOMO is bad at, at the best of times, but during that two weeks, my FOMO reached absolute fever pitch. The 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 problem of not being able to keep across all sports at all times was very very real for me. Um, so yes, I. I multi-screened big time. I did a lot of following on the radio because on the radio they're brilliant at darting around and just bringing you, making sure you're abreast of of all the important things that are happening. But I I think I definitely did less sitting down and watching full matches at that Olympics. Mm. I was very, I was definitely very across what was happening and the results. But I I don't think, uh, until the latter stages, I don't think I watch matches in full how about you i think that was my exact experience as well it's kind of like the opening day of a grand slam mm. where where matt just has a 12 hour long panic attack <laughs> yeah. staring at a screen walking back and forth going there's too much there's too much <laughs> yes it's sort of where fomo turns to i don't know knowing i missed out rather than fear of missing out you sort of in the moment knowing that there's so much going on that really is, though, where the radio comes into its own. Just mm. it's mm. the senses that you get to fall back on. I find that very relaxing because I'm just in their hands then. I don't have to worry mm. about it. I'll just, just trust their editorial judgment. They'll take me where I need to go when it's important. And I can just relax and do something else or just lie back and close my eyes. It's a relief, isn't it? It is a FOMO alleviator. Um, radio coverage in those sorts of situations. It was the first Olympic uh, tennis event to be held on a grass court since the introdu- reintroduction of the sport. And it was the first to be held at a Grand Slam venue in the open era. Of course, Paris in 2024 is going to be hold- held at Roland Garros. But um, until now, it's the only one to be held at a Grand Slam venue. Uh, for the first time since 1924, mixed doubles were officially included in the competition. And that meant that a record 190 players complete- competed. Um, and of course, one of the most notable things about it visually was that the championships and the All England Club were prepared to get rid of their all-white clothing policy and were prepared to allow Olympic um, uh, bunting and uh, signage and um, colours, Olympic colours everywhere uh, around Wimbledon, which I, personally I think it was that was important to make it not feel like Wimbledon. It was, it was lovely that it was held at Wimbledon, um, and I think that was the right decision, but it was important for it to feel different to Wimbledon, and they they really achieved that. And I loved seeing them all in their in their team's colours. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that, and um, and I think it elevated even the support. I think the moment that Roger Federer walks out in his bright red shirt and white shorts, the Swiss colours right there and, and you look at, up at the box I was watching the Olympic final before we came on and seeing Merca there in the in the team colours you know she's she's wearing the full thing um, and then Andy Murray's in the the navy blue and and red of, of the British colours for the event I, I, I just think it immediately gets you one Martin Del Potro wearing the Argentine flag basically when he's playing these sort of events it just it just works and gets everybody stirred up that much more and and no good good for them they did i thought they did it just right uh 
neither reigning champion were, were there to defend their titles. Elena Dementieva had retired from professional tennis a couple of years before and uh, Rafael Nadal, the champion in Beijing, withdrew uh, with tendonitis in his knee. So we were guaranteed new champions going in. And I'm sure many people remember, but in the women's singles, it was Serena Williams that defeated Maria Sharapova, another chapter of the unrivalry, for the loss of just one game in the gold medal match. Um, and that was her first singles gold medal. I'd kind of forgotten that, actually, that it took her until 2012 to win a singles gold medal. Um it was her sixth major title won at Wimbledon at the time because, of course, she'd won five Wimbledon titles and she'd won she'd won Wimbledon that year less than three weeks earlier. She didn't even come close to losing a set all tournament and lost just 17 games in six matches and only one of those was in the final against Maria Sharapova. She was, and she, she puts it this way herself, a woman on a mission that week. She she went to London with the target of winning singles gold and she made it happen and nothing was going to stand in her way. Mm. Unstoppable, you might say. Oh, <laughs> David. She's just brought out a, a jewellery range called Unstoppable. Have you seen? Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. And that <laughs> so is the great. name of Maria's book, for anybody who doesn't know. She she says it was the she said I honestly don't think I've ever played better from start to finish talking about the week, um, which is quite something for for Serena to say that. It's the best I've ever seen Serena Williams play. I think quite often Serena is so good that she can actually get by with not playing close to her best. She can get by through the strength of her serve and just her mental strength I think on the court is often enough to get her through matches and tournaments even this this week as you said she lost 17 games in six matches no set went further than 6-3 in her last three matches she beat the three players who had most recently been world number one Caroline Wozniacki Victoria Azarenka and Maria Sharapova so she had a tough draw and everything just came together. It's the best I've seen her move. It's the best I've seen her hit the ball. It's the best I've seen her serve. And, I mean, there's two things that always stand out. One is that she achieved the goatiest of goat stats by becoming the only player ever to have completed the Golden Slam in singles and doubles by winning that singles gold medal. That was the, that was the one piece that was missing. And her joy and her delirium after winning where she does the that dance what's it called the quit walk where she is just on the court doing the quit walk and just with a beaming smile on her face and I've never seen her react like that before and she's jumping up and down in joy Venus is in the box jumping up and down and it's clear that okay her grand slams mean an awful lot to her but this this was something something different something that she's had to chase as you said it was 2012 i mean by by 2002 i think she'd won all the grand slams so this was 10 years later um mm. and there was a sense of 
there was a sense of a kind of journey behind it and a struggle to get to it. And yet when she when she achieved it, she made it look like the easiest thing in the world. It was this incredible contrast. There was something so spontaneous about that reaction and celebration, wasn't it? That's what was infectious about it. And and actually she said, I didn't think I would be this happy. She said, oh my gosh, I got the goal. Wow, gold. Wow, I've never played better. Um, I never expected gold in singles. I thought if my career's over, I have my gold medal and now I have everything. I love those quotes. I felt her performance over the course of that tournament reminded me of when I watch Usain Bolt run and I watch him win so easily and ease to the finish line and smile a lot of the time because he's he's won it so easily and it's all part of his appeal. And I always find myself wondering, imagine what time he could do if he just went all the way flat out. Mm. And that was what, what was like watching Serena in that, olympics that she just put the foot down throughout the entire tournament and we saw the chasm between her and everybody else and and, and there's that sense when you watch bolt that he's making really fast people look slow and serena is making incredible tennis players just look like nothing it was it, it was extraordinary and talk about the whole lose a silver, win a bronze thing. I know who I'd have rather been in London 2012 out of Maria Sharapova, who collected the silver after losing, just uh, winning just one game in the final, and Victoria Zarenka, who won the bronze, beating Maria Kirilenko in straight sets in her in her bronze medal match. I mean, that was not a particularly joyous Maria Sharapova on that podium. No. I always think the, uh, the medal looks quite pretty, the silver medal. <laughs> but, you know, I just like the look of it. I always look well, you're at, either look a at the silver, silver or gold person, aren't you, depending on your complexion. Is that right? Okay. Mm. Um, oh, this would be a good time to mention David's um, new nickname. Talking about silver. The silver-haired YouTuber. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, this was uh, given to me by the lovely um, Solly Hall Simon after he'd taken his most recent defeat at my hands. Um, and yeah, he was—he was—he's he's become a tennis podcast listener. So hello, Simon. Um, and he says, "Yeah, you—you're like a silver-haired YouTuber." <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> um, Solly Hall Simon, unexpected comedy gold. Um. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, hor- it was horrible for Maria Sharapova, wasn't it? I mean, so- some of her meetings with Serena post-2004 have been awkward, but that one was awkward, that final, t- it, to the extent that at 15-all in the final game, a spectator shouted, don't give up, Maria. And then one point later, someone else shouted, Maria, don't worry, I still want to marry you, um, which is oh, well, kind of ga- well, ghastly. That. I mean, well, it's, it's ghastly, but it's, you know, if you're getting sympathy heckles from chauvinists in the audience, you know you're having a bad day. <laughs> I mean, awful. And that was her one and only Olympics. Of course, she was she was serving the band during Rio and, and now she's retired. I wonder if she thought she would have op- other opportunities. Um, the only other one she's been to, I imagine, was Sochi when she was doing sideline interviews. Oh, yes. Yeah. 
with Mary. In the uh, Winter Olympics. Mm. Was she with Mary, really? It, yeah, well, Mary's got that uh, story about how she was an absolute dream. She did a feature with NBC oh, yeah. um, with Mary and she was, you know, she was just a dream, really professional and charming and... Yeah, really interesting anecdote. Um, so Victoria Azarenka, who was the top seed and she remained the world number one after the tournament, she she won the bronze. Um, as as you said, uh, Matt Serena defended her, her women's doubles title alongside Sister Venus. Um, and with their gold, the Williams sisters also became the first four-time gold medalists in Olympic tennis history. So that's three doubles golds together which is ridiculous uh, and then of course their singles golds as well and they could win more i know venus's selection for for tokyo is is not a given but ha- i'd i'd be selecting her i would try and find a way to make it a given <laughs> yeah exactly um so yeah and of course that that singles gold for, for for Serena, uh, equaled the achievement of, of Steffi Graf uh, by cr- completing the career Golden Slam. Of course, Steffi did it in a year, in 1988, which still remains one of the most mind-boggling things that we have relived <laughs> over the course of the past few months. But Serena did it uh, in her career, which is pretty mind-boggling in itself. And as you say, the fact that it took her 10 years to get the the cherry on the cake for it is just, yeah, it's really quite something. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This edition of the Tennis Podcast is sponsored by Tennis Channel and Tennis Channel Plus is the place to watch the French Open. They've got every court live and you can watch on your phone or on your smart TV in HD. Sounds great. There's genuinely nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere. And can I just sit and watch Court Susan Longland all day? 
You sure can, David. Wherever the stories are, the rivalries emerge and the generations clash, you can watch it all with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Be there when it happens by subscribing to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription. In the men's event, I can't quite remember what happened in the in the men's competition. Can anyone anyone remind me? Yeah, um, it was Andy Murray. Everyone, he beat Roger Federer in straight sets in front of, of course, the home crowd, avenging his four set loss to Federer, which would have been exactly four weeks earlier on the same court in the Wimbledon final. That Wimbledon final, of course, was the I'm getting closer. Um, moment and he was he was he didn't know how much closer he 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 was at that moment um because he was ready at that point he was ready to to take the next step the interim step to becoming a grand slam champion which he did later on that summer at the US Open um it was an extraordinary, or not an extraordinary final, actually, in terms of tennis, because Roger Federer was, he was pretty knackered, wasn't he? Del Potro had had done Andy Murray a favour that day. And, and I don't mean to take anything away from Andy Murray's performance, because he was ready, his tennis was ready. But, you know, he it was definitely an underpowered Roger Federer on the day of that final. And, and he was well overdue a favour in a big match, Andy Murray, I would say. I've never seen Federer's game on grass shut down like that in the way that Murray managed in that final. I mean, I mean, he's taken quite a lot of losses at Wimbledon, Federer to Djokovic in the years since then. But in those matches, it's always felt like Djokovic has kind of allowed Federer's game to flourish still. And he's just picked him off in the biggest moments. Murray smothered Federer in that final in a way that I remember being shocking. I think he won eight games in a row. Suddenly five love up in the in the second set. I mean, he almost bageled Federer on grass, on centre court. That, that, I mean, as you said, Federer was flat emotionally and physically. But Murray's tennis was so powerful and aggressive and perfect, really. I think it was... I think that's some of the best tennis he's ever played in his whole career. Um, and it was, it was imbued with this extra sense of prestige I think the fact that it was at Wimbledon this extra sense of of significance I think as well because it still felt a bit like a slam it felt like he was on his way then to winning a slam and and Judy Murray in that interview you did with her just a couple of weeks ago talked about the importance of that Olympics for Murray and I've always thought about it in terms of the importance of helping him to win the US Open. But she talked about it in terms of the importance of helping him to get over the Wimbledon final defeat. So it's it's important for both reasons, I think. It's it's such a significant moment in Murray's career. I think it was the the best of both worlds for Andy Murray in that it was at Wimbledon, on in his comfort zone, on the grass there with all of the home support, more support than he had for the for the Wimbledon final because of that tribal element that comes with, with the Olympics course Roger Federer when it's just regular tennis Federer gets the lion's share of the support wherever he plays but yet he didn't have all the pressure on his shoulders because he was just one British athlete Mm. competing among so many others it he wasn't bearing that burden solo he was almost in terms of the 
the wider Olympics flying a little bit under the radar. And that felt like sort of a perfect concoction for Andy Murray at that stage of his career. And yeah, as you say, his tennis, the the imprint of Ivan Lendl on his tennis that day was so clear. It was that beefy, hard-hitting, just intentful tennis. He just had so much intent that day, knew exactly what he wanted to do. And nobody, not even Roger Federer, was going to stand in his way. Plus, he was inspired because he'd already beaten Djokovic in the, the previous round. And then he himself had watched Super Saturday, just yeah. as we had. You know, sa- and he, They've got some quotes on that. He said, the way Mo Farah won, he said, I mean, I do 400 metre repetitions in my training. And when I'm completely fresh, I can run it in 57 seconds. And his last lap after 9,600 metres was 53 seconds. It's just unbelievable fitness. And it gave me a boost. Mm. And you, you saw that the way he strode out to play Federer. There was, I think sometimes you can sense with Murray when he plays against Federer, just being a little bit cowed by the whole thing. You know, Federer just owns these places and there's such a, an ovation for him. And, and you, you're right, it was, it was so much louder this time for Andy Murray. And it felt like he just was not going to, allow himself to be subdued he just came out from the off and just took him apart he also talked about being inspired by Catherine Granger didn't he who was the rower who'd won silver in Sydney Athens and Beijing and that's a I mean of course Murray's going to be inspired by that that was Murray's story and Catherine Granger had finally got the gold in London just before Murray had the chance to get his gold and you know Murray had had four near misses in grandstand finals and then finally had his his moment i can really i can really see why he was inspired by that as well as as well as obviously super saturday he said um to keep coming back is something that not many can do i think she'll tell you that she's a lot happier right now than someone who won gold at their first attempt obviously you want it to happen as soon as possible but in sport when it's taken a long time to get that first breakthrough it's more special he was relating very, very hard, wasn't he? Um, which is so nice. I mean, I know he didn't he didn't stay in the Olympic Village. I mean, a, a very few tennis players, in fact, at that Olympic stayed in the Olympic Olympic Village just because Wimbledon is on completely the opposite side of London to to Stratford, where where the um, the main Olympic Park was. I mean, it was it was it would be you know with traffic, it could take you three hours to get from Wimbledon to to Stratford. But he embraced every part of the olympics you you possibly can can't you that that's being swept up in other sports and being being inspired by other sports he just completely bought into all of that and and i love it must be such a humbling experience being at the mm. olympics as andy murray or as roger federer rafa nadal serena williams you know they they're used to completely owning the arenas and the spotlight and then suddenly they're not that focus and as you say it must it must be humbling but also I, I think for some of them it's not nice some of them probably like being being the alpha I think most of those you've just described I think love it because I think, I think they that do, they're yeah. all massive sports fans who are buzzing they're, they're they are like other athletes how tennis fans are about them Really, they're they're in awe of uh, of these other athletes, and I actually think 
great athletes often just like to be in the company or around other great athletes they get a buzz out of it i think mm. they can relate to it i think they're uplifted generally and they're, and they're, they're also students all of those players that you've just mentioned i think they're they're great students of what other people do and because they themselves are at the top of tennis there's not there's not so much they can learn from anybody else within tennis but you go and have a look at other athletes in other sports and you can yeah so for federer it's kind of the third olympics for him that's that's got away i mean got away in a less dramatic way he 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 came away with a medal this time but it's definitely an opportunity missed from him he was putting a positive spin on it he said for me it's been a great month i won wimbledon became world number one again and i got silver don't feel too bad for me i mean i'm not i'm not losing sleep for roger federer that but. previous round, I mean, I was watching, watched a few minutes of the previous round against Del Potro before mm. we came on air here. And I mean, at nine all, he broke and had a chance to serve for the match, Federer. And then he, he ends up, and, I, and I'm not sure where it, where his chances might have come earlier in the set as well. But I mean, he ends up winning it 19-17 in the third set of a match that I think was well over four hours. And... What was it next day that he had to come out and play again in the final? And I mean, he just, he does look, as you said, underpowered. He doesn't look the same human being. And it shows how well as well, by the way, that Del Potro did to beat Djokovic to win the bronze. Four hours, 26 minutes, that match. The final set alone took two hours, 43 minutes. Um, And Del Potro said after the loss, to lose this way hurts a lot. It's very hard to talk about it right now. Everyone has their time. The US Open was my time, not today. So the given the physical and the emotional outlay during that semi-final, I can't believe that he came back and won the bronze against Novak Djokovic, no less. I find that extraordinary. Um, yeah, and extraordinary and, and Del Potro are words that you'll be hearing together in the same sentence again in future Olympics relived podcasts. Um, Yeah, absolutely amazing feat from Juan Martín del Potro. In the men's doubles, uh, the Bryan brothers took gold finally, bit sort of Serena Williams-like here, to complete their career Golden Slam. Uh, Only the Woodies had done that as a team before that and Canada's Daniel Nestor. And in the mixed doubles, it was Victoria Azarenka and Max Mirny who took... uh, the mixed doubles gold. They beat Andy Murray and Law Robson. Of course, that match was the last to be played during the Olympic tennis tournament. And it was played just less than an hour, I think, after Murray had won the gold gold medal. It was after suitable rest, I think, it was listed as on the schedule. So Andy Murray goes off court having had the biggest moment of his career and then has to regroup um, to take part in another gold medal match with alongside his partner, Laura Robson. Um, and, you know, take away the singles. And that, that match alone, that mixed doubles match, probably would still have been one of the biggest of his career because a gold medal looks the same, regardless of the event that you, you win it in. And I think Andy Murray would have, would have seen it that way, that way too. Yeah, I agree. I, th- I think it's a shame in a way that it was on the same day that they mm. didn't just have a, a a day to properly enjoy that gold medal singles and then come out and try and do it again. Um, but but you're right, because I mean, if he'd have lost to Djokovic in the semis, 
suddenly imagine the focus that would have been on mm. on this other match to, whereas to me at least i don't know how it felt to you to me this felt like oh this will be like icing on the cake it, it, mm. it but it, it it's lovely to have but it's not a necessity in the same way which is tough for Laura Robson, his partner. I mean, she'd been through the ringer as well because she was sat watching Andy Murray uh, win his gold in the gold medal match. And she she was so invested in the whole thing, wasn't she? It was clear how invested she was in the Olympics and what it meant to her to compete, what it meant to her to be chosen as Andy Murray's partner. And David, you you spoke to Laura Robson and that, that came across so much in absolutely everything she had to say. She is, I felt kinship with her when I was listening her to, talk, to her talk about the Olympics. I think the podium might be uh, Leander Pays Me and Laura Robson, uh, or colour of medals to be determined. Um, so let's, let's, let's hear from Laura um, and why and how the Olympics um, is so significant to her. It was always a huge part of our family, really. It was like something that we always watched together, and I remember being on holiday watching the Sydney Olympics and, you know, Athens and everything. So I think my family was equally excited as I was to even be a part of it because it meant that they could come and watch every day. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, really, really important. And I think, um, you know, when I was, I was sort of like an alternate for singles and then I was waiting to get in. And when I did move into the draw, my parents were so hyped. <laughs> I bet they were. It's always struck me when, whenever I've seen you talk about other sports that you seem really into things like the Olympics. Yeah, well, I think everyone gets like that, don't they? It's, you watch these sports that you would never usually put on and by the end of the day, you're so invested in a particular person or a particular event and like everyone gets so involved. I remember 2012, um, there was a bunch of us watching the sh- I think it was the clay pigeon shooting on a, on a big screen at Wimbledon. And by the end of it, there was Federer going like, oh, my God, he's just missed it. And none of us even knew the rules, but everyone just wanted the English guy, to, <laughs> the British bloke to win. So didn't matter. Oh, did win. I a, still remember that. What a great story. Um, how, how did it come about that you partnered Andy? Good question. I don't even fully remember it wasn't it was obviously his choice and then I just got a text one evening basically being like so there's a chance that depending on how he does in doubles and how he's doing in his singles that he might play mixed and just be ready kind of thing so yeah obviously I jumped at the chance and um I was still I think I'd lost in the women's doubles but I was still in the singles but I was yeah really really excited for the um to get a chance to play in the mix and especially with Andy and it was only it was such a small draw as well so you know you win a match or two when you're playing for a medal straight away mm. and and it seemed as though you kind of hit it off as a partnership pretty pretty quickly is that how it felt to you Yeah I think we'd been lucky that we'd played Hopman Cup before so we still, you know, we, we didn't have a, a practice or, or a lot of matches under our, our belt by any means, but we had some at least. And a lot of the partnerships had just been lumped together because everyone was trying to see who they could get in with. And, um, yeah, I think 
that's probably why he chose me more than anything else just the fact that we'd played together before mm. well it worked out pretty well um ha- i mean he obviously had a lot on that week with with going all the way in in the singles ha- how did you how much practice time did you get with him over the course of that week oh none <laughs> none i was um i was practicing with my coach and then i'd go watch his singles and then we'd kind of have a little chat before hand um with him and his coach and whatever to see what our tactics were going to be and um yeah just went from there but it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't uh that organized by any means so what and what were the how detailed were those tactics i think it went along the lines of let andy get most of the balls and yeah and that's that <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned you watched most of his matches. Where where were you when he was playing his singles final against Federer? I was on the court, but not. I mean, in the box. I mean, of course. and yeah, and I think for the rest of the week, everyone was kind of encouraging um, most people to stay inside and just kind of because once you're out there, you get so locked in with the energy that it's actually super draining. Um, but that one, there was not a chance that I was going to miss atmosphere on on center what was it like it was mental it was mental and it was so wild that um that he had such strong support and considering a couple of weeks before Federer had most of the support in center and it was just a massive turnaround and yeah great great day so describe the 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 hour after that match because I mean it was a very quick turnaround wasn't it you you meet up and he's won the gold and off you go again. Uh, yeah, I don't even, I think from what I remember, he just got some food, got changed and then got back out there because the difference with, um, the Olympics was you had that media run, um, in the walkway outside. So you did most of it directly after the singles. So there wasn't that whole delay of like, what time is media going to be done? All of that. So, yeah, it was just a really quick turnaround and we got back out there. And what and what did it feel like to walk out with him? And I mean, the crowd, I imagine, are still catching their breath at, at the same time they're up for it. Yeah, I think the first voice I heard was my mum's. Um, she was going mental from the start. And I just remember feeling like a little bit overwhelmed at the start and kind of working my way into the match. And it, it helped that my... Um, brother was one of the ground staff so he was holding the umbrella um for various matches but he managed to get on court for the final as well so nice to see a friendly face at the change of ends but hold hold on your brother was holding an umbrella above your head during the match yeah he um because he always did the ground staff for Wimbledon he'd done it for I think three or four years at that point and he'd chosen to stay on for the Olympics and i think it was a much smaller team obviously because not as many courts were in play and he managed to um kind of (laughs) probably swap with other people to be able to watch most of my matches from literally a meter behind me (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing um do, do you think in hindsight i mean obviously you made it a very close match but do you think in hindsight it did take anything out of you watching andy's match and with all the emotion no, no. I, I think more than anything, I would have been gutted had I not been in the crowd to watch it. So 
no matter what the result of the mix was, I'm glad I didn't miss that moment. Mm. So you've played the match. It was very, very close. You lost it on the super tiebreak in the end. What is your overriding feeling at the end? Because you get a medal, but you haven't got the gold medal. I think it was so tough because we were so close. And I know more than anything, I was like, oh, God, I'm the one that's let us down here, which probably took me a couple of hours to even look like I enjoyed the silver medal because the whole time I was was apologising and... um, you know, I think towards the end of the super time, I just got a bit overwhelmed. And yeah, the the feeling straight afterwards was that it was my fault, which was, yeah, not great. But it, it did take me a couple of hours to be like, well, actually, it's still amazing that we've been able to get another medal for the whole of, of GB and that I stood on the podium and stuff like that. So, yeah. Tough to take, but in hindsight, still a great achievement, I think. Mm, well, it sure is. And I, th- I mean, you're probably being a bit hard on yourself in, in hindsight. But I mean, at the same time, I I can imagine when you're playing alongside the guy who's won the gold medal and the whole country talks about him as a hero, and, and you, is that... Is that more difficult in a way for you as the partner? Or is that, I mean, obviously he's a great player. Uh, no, to be honest, it was it was really nice because I think it took a lot of pressure off my shoulders in the earlier rounds. Just that if he made a mistake, it was like not a, not a big deal for me then. Um, but I think in the final, both of us sort of didn't realise how good Azarenka and Manny were as a team already. And in the first set, we kind of ran away with it a bit and then I just remember Manny adding an extra bit of kick on his serve and I probably didn't make an, another first serve return for the rest of the match. So they just had a bit more of a second gear to get to. And um, yeah, I mean, they were an amazing team. But yeah, I thought the whole time playing with Andy was just really, really fun. Well, what was he like? Uh I mean, it was it was like a different atmosphere because we, when we played Hopman Cup, that was literally just fun as an exhibition. Obviously, you want to win that, but it is an exhibition. But when you've got a bit more on the line at the Olympics, obviously, we both took it very seriously. And, you know, we were just trying to play well together. I, I'd let him take over when he needed to and he'd tell me what to do. And that was that was more than fine with me. Mm. You, I would imagine, didn't get to stay in the Athletes' Village, given that it was in London. Would Is that something you would have liked to do? Uh, yeah, we all stayed at home, seeing as we're all pretty much Southwest locals, um, and it just made more sense to stay closer to Wimbledon to get rid of the commute. Um, at first, I was really gutted because I wanted to be really involved, but... I think anyone that did stay in the village, from what I remember chatting to other countries and, and things like that, the commute did kill them and it's very energy sapping being in the village the whole time. So I think it would have been nice to kind of move in there afterwards and stay there for the rest of the games. But obviously we all had to go to Cincinnati pretty much the day after the final. 
Mm, yeah, nature of tennis as opposed to mm-hmm. some of these other sports. And and it actually, I mean, you went on and had that fantastic run at the US Open shortly after that. Did, do you think the Olympics was was part of that that you that you had that run? For sure, um, it just sort of gave me a bit of a lift, and I was probably gutted the week after because I went straight from playing in an Olympic final to qualies of Cincinnati, where I don't think I even qualified to be honest, but it sort of was like a reset button in my head. Like, Oh yeah, this is reality and I need to, you know, step up my game if I want to play on these big stadiums again and feel that same type of energy. So as soon as I got to New York, it was like game on. And I felt like I had a bit more knowledge of how to play big points and stuff like that. Just a bit more experience. Mm. Where's that medal now? Uh, it sounds really bad, but I don't know. Um, my mum is like very, very nervous about things getting stolen. <laughs> she likes to move stuff around um, and then only tells my dad where things are, but I think he's forgotten. But I'm pretty sure they took it to Australia with them. I should I should ask. <laughs> Yeah, they moved back to Australia in November and I'm fairly sure it's gone with them, but I should really find that out. If you, I don't know whether you have seen any footage of it since or recently with all the rewind stuff that BBC have been showing, but I mean, if you see that match or see yourself back then, what what comes to mind? Uh, a bit of A bit of nostalgia, really, because we were, I think, I, well me particular, I was so young and in hindsight, I probably took that whole week a bit for granted thinking I was going to play in so many more Olympics and that this was just like the first of many. And now with all the sort of injury struggles that I've had, I wish I'd just appreciated it all a bit more. And, and, you know, I remember being in such a strop when we weren't allowed to go to the um, opening ceremony and now now I'm like, what was I thinking? Of course, I, we, none of us should have gone. All of us were playing the next day. And, uh, yeah, it's just growing up a bit, isn't it, that you, you realise that the, the decisions that were made at the time were for the good of everyone. Mm. Yeah, and, and as you say, what, what are you, 25 now? Um, and, uh, yeah, crikey, it suddenly feels like quite a long time ago. Yeah, it does. And then I get tagged in all the pictures and I've got such a baby face as well. <laughs> yeah, well, nobody can ever take that silver medal away from you if you can ever find it. Yeah, it, I, I'd like to think it's somewhere safe, but <laughs> I should, yeah, I should really find out. Your mum knows, don't worry. <laughs> well, I was just, as we were listening to that, I was just saying to David and Matt how how well uh, Laura Robson was coming across and how much I was enjoying hearing her talk. And then she admitted that not only was her medal not about her person, but she wasn't quite sure where it was. And if she had to guess it, she would guess that it was 10,000 miles away. Uh, and yeah, not following the, uh, the guidelines for what to do with your <laughs> Olympic medal, Laura. <laughs> then they come with a, with, I'm sure I've seen Jess Ennis talk about her Olympic medal on the Graham Norton show, and it tells you that it comes with a little cleaning kit. Mm. Yeah, I'd be cleaning it twice twice a day. 
yeah and the and the final bullet point should be keep it with you yeah at all times and if as i said i'm i'm okay with it being with your parents i think that's nice but i think you know you should i don't know arrange a weekly skype chat to just check in on the medal and discuss (laughs) discuss you know check that it's clean being cleaned as per the um the ioc instructions that sort of thing i would say yeah just something to think about um that that last bit of that interview has left me with a bit of a lump in my throat i have to say um you know trying to describe that feeling i have of you know i'll never experience watching a home olympics again i can only imagine that's amplified by several thousand for somebody that's experienced it and played in one and represented their country to to have the the fear i I mean i desperately hope that laura robson does get to to play an olympics for for team gb again but obviously obviously it's dawned on her that that she might not um and that goodness me that must be extremely tough to take it's it's pathos heavy that uh, mm. that thought isn't it well she's been dealt a rough hand really when you consider back then how exciting her career stretching before her looked to all of us from the outside and as we've heard there for her as well you know she went on to the US Open she beat Kim Clijsters ended her career at that point okay Kim Clijsters has come back this year which also hits you in in the gut just it's eight years ago, and she played the last U.S. Open match, the last Grand Slam match against Kim Clijsters that Kim has ever played, and she beat her handily. And then she went and beat Lee Nahr, who went on to win Grand Slams. You know, this was the starting point of a great career for Laura Robson. That's how it felt. And mixed doubles with Andy Murray was all a big celebration, okay? They, they got the silver, not the gold, but it was all just this wonderful moment and enjoyable and it would be the first of many and yet it isn't because she's been hit by the worst wrist injury that took two years out of her career she's had subsequently a hip injury that's required a couple of surgeries now she hasn't been a force in tennis really pretty much since then I mean it's it was seven years ago that that it all started to go wrong and uh I do find that quite heartbreaking, really. And and I've got to know Laura just a little bit from commentary work when we were at BT Sport together and and on BBC Radio 5 Live as well. Always enjoyed her company. Um, She's got a good sense of humour. She's a good laugh. And she actually reads the game, I find, as well, really interestingly. And she's not afraid to say what she thinks. So we'll hear from her no matter what, I think, in those circles. And I think she's got a lot to offer. But I'll always, I think, feel quite sad, I think, when I think about the career that she has been, she has had taken away from her just by bad luck. And it's even more stark when you, when you consider her Olympics in tandem with Andy Murray. We've talked a lot in this podcast about that Olympics being a launch pad for Andy Murray, and, and it was. And it's kind of like... <laughs> Okay, I don't think anyone was ever predicting Laura Robson to win multiple slams and become world number one like Andy Murray has become. But there's a sense that Laura Robson's career trajectory could have followed a similar one to Andy Murray's in terms of having London 2012 as the start of the best period of her career. And actually, 
it now looks almost as almost like the pinnacle in in terms of certainly that summer as you mentioned with that US Open and and just the different paths that those that their careers have taken since winning that silver medal together in the mixed doubles is is so so different and it's through absolutely no fault of Laura Robson's that that's that that's come about because as you said she's just been crippled by injuries just one after the other blow after blow every every time there's been a chance of a comeback something else has happened and she's not even sure if she can get out on the tennis tour again let alone be thinking about winning things so it's really as you said it's i find it difficult (laughs) Not to get quite sad about Laura mm. Robson's career, particularly when her, as you said, it's it seemed so bright for such a short time. I feel for her that she didn't get to go to the opening ceremony. It's tough for those athletes that have to start on on day one. Uh, and for that reason, they, they don't get to go. I mean, it's very it's very mature of her that she she has no regrets about that because it would niggling at the back of my mind the whole time I also love that she has no regrets about watching Andy Murray in the singles gold medal match she's you know she doesn't care whether it would have given them a better chance maybe if she had been backstage preparing that's not relevant to her because she wouldn't give up that experience of watching him win gold for anything and that's it's what the Olympics is about, isn't it? It's about experiences and moments, and and she's clearly got just the the perfect appreciation of that, even if her the whereabouts of her medal is currently unknown. And nobody's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and and yet, I find it also sad that she thinks, in some way, she let down Andy Murray. I, th- I found that really mm. touching as well. I think. It, it it brought to mind watching Viktor Troitsky partner Novak Djokovic oh. in the Davis Cup last year, and oh, and the way that was kind of like a trauma for him when they lost, and he was talking about how he yeah he just felt like he had let down Djokovic, and there is a particular pressure with of playing with someone so great, um, but I'm I'm sure that all she would need is a little conversation with Andy Murray to yeah to reassure her that absolutely that is that is not what happened um yeah and they came very close to beating the the best mixed doubles team in in the world didn't they i mean mm. so yeah but i think the coming very close probably makes it tougher to take rather than than easier to take but she should be awfully proud of that single silver medal and she should locate it as a matter of urgency (laughs) (laughs) um so that is the olympics london 2012 is there any can we make this go on any longer is there anything is anyone else can we drag this thing out or am i gonna have to get my dvds out again yeah i I think you've squeegeed every last (laughs) drop out of it personally it's okay guys because i also took two weeks off for the rio olympics uh and i can squeegee that one as well i've got the dvds got my second telly set up raring to go and it's the last one so we really will be squeegeeing away uh, yeah, one more Olympics relived to come uh, tomorrow. Uh, they've ended up being daily. I don't know, <laughs> don't know how that <laughs> happened. Uh, so yeah, five Grand Slams and an Olympics worth of daily podcasts in the year 2020. Well done us. Uh, Reminded that our new I Love Tennis range of t-shirts is available from our merch store. 
there's details in the show notes, um, but it's uh, just Google T-Mill Tennis Podcast and the whole range will come up. Lots of new colours. We've retired our I Miss Tennis range, possibly temporarily, <laughs> depending on <laughs> depending on what happens pandemic-wise in the next few weeks and months. You know, never say never. Learned not to take anything for granted in the year 2020. But yeah, we're hoping that I Love Tennis will, will at least be timeless. Um, so yeah that is London 2012 Olympics firmly relived we've got one more of these to go we'll see you then Hi I'm Daniel founder of Pretty Litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter that's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 